hey, thanks for downloading the show. I uh, appreciate it. I'm Washington Ginsberg and um, I make this show twice a week. Don't do it by myself. Rachel Barrett, my EP, and Andy, my audio producer, um, help make it with me and I have to pay them. So to pay them, you might hear an ad. If you hear an ad, thank you very much. If you don't hear an ad, you're going to hear the minimalists say something cool. Here we go. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Yes, the things are really important. But when we have so many things, we treat everything as precious. Well, if everything's precious, then nothing's precious. If everything's important, then nothing is important in my life. And the problem is, it'd be great if those 300,000 items increased and amplif- all of them amplified our happiness. But that, we know that's not happening. They're actually getting in the way. They're making us more discontent. We never stop to think about the actual cost of a thing. You know, there's the price tag. If you buy a widget for $20, fine. But the actual cost of the thing goes way beyond the price tag. There's the cost of storing the thing and cleaning the thing and worrying about the thing and securing the thing and changing the batteries in the thing or putting gas in the thing. Whatever it might be, there's all these hidden costs, psychological costs, the emotional costs. They go way beyond the price tag. That is Joshua Fields Milburn and Ryan Nicodemus. They are also known as the minimalists. And you are listening to Better Than Yesterday. Hello and welcome to Better Than Yesterday. I'm Washi Ginsberg. Thanks so much for being here. I appreciate it. Uh, this is a bi-weekly podcast that hopes to help you make today a little bit better than yesterday. Something you hear on this show, I'll do just that. Help you make better than yesterday, better than yesterday. That's it. I'm here Mondays and Fridays. Mondays, I'm here with a guest. Fridays, I'm here with you. I'm Washi Ginsberg. I'm a TV host. I'm a podcaster. I'm an author. I'm a dad, stepdad, and sleeper inner. Uh, <laughs> I was this morning, at least. I've been, just been working my my hoop out and um, actually had a day off today and there was a lot of sleeping in. So thank you, my wife, Audrey, for helping me get some sleep in when baby's like, don't care what you did last night. 
we need to get up and get some stuff done now. So uh, thanks heaps. I appreciate all the feedback, the wonderful feedback about Friday's show that I talked about exposure therapy. I appreciate that a lot. If you want to get in touch with me, send Osher email at gmail.com. That's where you can find me. And I always love to see where you're watching the show. If the show does bring you value, please just tell a mate, tell a friend, tell your mum, tell your dad, tell your brother, tell your sister, tell someone you work with. Share the episode using the share feature in the podcast app you're listening to. Whatever. I really appreciate it. Let me tell you about my guest today. I love these guys. I'm so grateful that they wanted to come on the show. I was blown away when they reached out to me because I love what they do. And when they reached out to me, I was like, holy moly, this big BFD that these cats want to be on my show. Anyway, Joshua Fields Milburn and Ryan Nicodemus are otherwise known as the minimalists. If you've seen their work, uh, whether it be on YouTube or Netflix or whatever, you'll, you'll know what they're all about. They do what they say on the box. They've got a brand new book out. It's called Love People, Use Things Because the Opposite Never Works. Yeah. They have a very, very successful series on Netflix. Uh, they've got a podcast. They've got books. They're basically trying to help people live meaningful lives with less stuff. In the new book, they basically talk about prioritizing relationships with people, the relationships that matter the m- most to you, while decluttering other elements of your life. And they move past, I guess, kind of simple decluttering to really show how using minimalism, it it makes room to reevaluate and heal the essential relationships we need in our life. Relationships to stuff, to truth, to ourselves, to money, to values, to creativity, and to other people. They do this by telling stories from their own life, but I'll let them get into that. They're wonderful human beings. I'm grateful I got a chance to speak to them all the way from LA. Enjoy this conversation with Joshua Fields Milburn and Ryan Nicodemus, the minimalists. I feel terrible that I'm speaking with the minimalists and there's three guitars behind me. <laughs> hey man, we don't judge. We don't judge. Yeah, we're not gonna like make you get rid of anything, I promise. Right. Like, if anything, we might be able to like talk you into feeling good about having those three guitars. because oh, okay. So, well, hello. We're in let's just start. G'day. Nice to see you boys. Thanks so much for doing this. It's a cold, rainy day here in Sydney where the baby's a bit sick. He's asleep upstairs. Uh, and we are in a two-week COVID lockdown. So that's kind of the small picture of what's happening. Oh, wow. Where we are, where are you guys? We're in beautiful Los Angeles, California. How's Los Angeles today, guys? Good, sunny. It's nice. I mean, pretty much that's every day in Los Angeles. Sunny yeah. and nice. A, a little on the hot side, but uh, but you know you can't complain. I lived there for uh, about ten years. Uh, the Bill Hicks line was perfect every single time. Hot and sunny. Hot yeah. and sunny. Yeah. Tomorrow, yeah. what's it going to be? Hot and he's sunny. My favorite. Yeah, he's great. He's great. <laughs> I'm out by the pool. You were in LA for 10 years. I didn't realize that. Him man. and every other old I was. You guys, uh, Ryan, Josh, you've you've known each other for some time, haven't you? Oh, yeah. We, we've known each other since we were fat little fifth graders. What's that in America? That's 10 years old? Yeah, it's about 10 years old. Yeah, I... So my mom and dad split up when I was younger. I was living with my mom. My father got custody of me. Uh, it was about halfway through uh, grade five school year. I went to move with him. And I remember the first day of class in my new school, I saw a kid who was fatter than me <laughs> and had a mullet. And I thought to myself, me and this kid, we're going to get along. And we did. We hit it off. We bonded over... 
you know, cheeseburgers and cheese fries and cheese sticks and other cheese related products. Um, yeah, we, we, we got to be friends pretty quickly. Oh, Josh, I'm, I'm kind of disappointed the mullet has since gone into the culling process. The minimalism has extended to the hair. Yeah, I know. Although my, my daughter tries to help me out with the product. She she tells me I use too much product in it. <laughs> Do Mate. you use product? <laughs> Just one dab. I don't know what's happening in America right now, but here in Australia, mate, the mullet is back. The ironic mullet is on. It is. My son's got one. He's two. Oh, wow. it, it is coming back in the States. I will say I've seen a lot of people supporting it. It wow. is 100% on. You guys... Um, you know, you did the thing, you grew up, you you knew each other for a while. At, at, at what point did you kind of reconnect? And, you know, you two of you obviously on this this journey together. Were you on the journey of like, fuck this noise of the working for the man, I'm out of here? Or did one of you go first? How did it work? Oh, yeah. I, yeah. So, yeah, we grew up uh, grade school, middle school, high school. When we When we graduated high school, we didn't see each other as much. But there was a certain point where... Josh got, he got married. He wanted me to be in the wedding and, you know, me being, you know, one of his best friends, I'm like, yeah, that'd be great. So we kind of reconnected a couple of years after graduating high school. And then shortly after that wedding, I was kind of complaining about my job. I was, <laughs> I was working at a daycare. Like I was doing this summer camp thing with kids. Um, it was awesome. It was a lot of fun. Like at first I was like, oh man, this is so cool. Like I'm working with all kids. I'm working with all chicks. Like, this is awesome. And then like eight months after I was like, oh, I'm working with all kids, working with all chicks. So I was, I was kind of complaining to Josh and he's like, well, you can come work uh, for me over at this telecom company being a salesman. And at that point I was looking for any type of exit from the current job I was in. So yeah, he totally talked me into coming over and being um, one of his sales guys. And boy, could I sell. I was a very good, very good salesman. And yeah, I worked in that company for about eight years. I think Josh was there for about 10 years. About 12, yeah. yeah. Now we're talking, like, what kind of sales are we talking here, guys? With a kind of like, oh my God, your, your phone is so outdated. We need to get you in. This one flips <laughs> open. How amazing. Yeah, no, pretty much. Exactly. Yeah, cell phones. Um, we also did like internet and home phone and uh, satellite TV home security. So it was kind of like an all-in type. Oh, you boys are on the whole package. Yeah, yeah, but you know, it's it's interesting. Like I, I was a good salesperson because I went out of my way to like really be honest with people. And at some point in my sales career, I was like, oh, like people are coming to my store because they want something. They just want someone to help them who they can trust. So I think that's why I ended up being such a good salesperson is because I wasn't like the, you know, the sleazy car salesman. Like, what's it going to take for me to get you into a car today? I mean, it was like an actual, you know, thoughtful process. And, you know, soon enough, they asked me to start teaching other salesmen by, you know, promoting me to manager. And and then I got, uh, I got in charge of sales and marketing for um, 150 retail stores for our, our business division. And um, yeah, I was able to transfer a lot of that that knowledge to other people. Yeah. I mean, that's probably the best thing about that job I liked. It was helping other people. Right. Yeah, everything else I hated though, but that one part <laughs> I really liked. <laughs> uh, right. So you were the uh, the Rob Caldini of, of telcos. You were teaching other people how to do it. <laughs> right. right. <laughs> you know, we, we grew up really poor and I thought making some money in our 20s was going to be the the key to happiness. We're sort of told that by culture, by society, by peer groups, etc. And I realized pretty quickly, like, oh, this isn't making me happy. By age 19, I was making $50,000 a year. And this is the late 90s. And so it 
seemed outstanding, but it was like, oh, I'm still, I'm actually going into debt making this much money. You know, maybe I need to adjust for inflation. And so it was $65,000 a year, $90,000 a year. It was always like happiness was right around the bend. But of course, by the time we were both age 30, which is a decade ago now, we, we had sort of climbed the corporate ladder high enough to realize like, oh, the guys who I really aspire to be like, they're pretty miserable. And if I work my ass off for the next 15 years, 20 years, 25 years, and become a C-level executive, maybe I'll be just as miserable as that guy I aspire to be like. Mm. How much stuff have you accumulated? Like two questions. Number one, did you guys watch Ed Norton and Fight Club and go, that guy looks depressed. There's no way I'm that guy. Or did you watch Ed Norton Fight Club and go, oh, shit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know what? I think we'd always tell ourselves I'm different. I'm going to be different. And, and it's like, but of course, if I use the same recipe, I'm going to bake the same cake in a way. And, and, and so, but it was like, oh, yeah, I'm using the, the recipe everyone else is implementing in their lives and they're miserable. But for some reason, it's going to magically be different if I can just have the big house in the suburbs. I, I had two Lexuses at my uh, I think they're called Lexi, you'll find once you get more than one. <laughs> yeah, I was uh, I was part of that club, the Lexi club. And uh, and then I had a Land, Land Rover as well. And I was like, well, wait a minute. I, the first Lexus didn't make me happy. I guess the second one will. We don't really even stop to consider what our real values are. We, we value whatever society, advertisers, market Etc. Sort of thrust upon us. So, yeah, you know, the 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 term is mimetic belief, and we have these mimetic desires in a way where, where we really desire the things of of our culture and the people mm-hmm. around us. When we get them, it turns out that many of the the objects of our desire become the objects of our discontent. Mm-hmm. You know, the the average American household has three hundred thousand items in it. Good God. And, uh, yeah. <laughs> and and but the thing is, we've toured over in Australia, New Zealand, and I can tell you that. Our American dream has permeated your borders. You, you know this very well. Uh, yeah. You mentioned a word there that I'd just love to just backtrack on because it might be the first time some people have heard it. They all have, know the word meme. A meme is, you know, probably some sort of ironic postmodern piece of art, maybe be a speech bubble with someone else's words written in there or a picture of someone and some lettering written on top of them. But that is one of the origins of the word you just used, memetic. Can you talk a little bit about that, please? Because it does function into what we'll talk about later. Yeah, it's a fancy way of saying keeping up with the Joneses, or now it's keeping up with the Kardashians. And and so we see these lifestyles on TV or now on our Instagram feeds, basically. And we want to mimic that, hence mimetic. And so what we do is we map our desires. Really, it's the other way around. We map someone else's desires onto us. Look at the smiling face in that ad or on that show or on that Instagram account. If I were to achieve or attain A, B, and C, the things they have, then I will be as successful as them. And I think success is a bit of a a misnomer in a way. I, I think in a strange way that success does not exist. And I know you've, you've come across this. I listened to an episode, a podcast episode you did with Josh Zepps. And you really talked about how you know, getting everything you ever wanted was sort of a nightmare in a way. And I think that Ryan and I we we got everything we ever wanted. We thought everything we thought we wanted. It turns out that everything we ever wanted wasn't what we wanted. And the reason I say success does not exist is it's always running after 
at least in our culture, it's running after a result. Now, you can redefine success and you can say it's having a, a family and a modest income or whatever, but that's not what when we hear success, we always think it's metric based and it's always grandiosity, right? It's seven figures or a six figure salary, or it's a 4,000 square foot house, or it's a certain amount of of money in the bank, or it's a, a trophy, some sort of status symbol. It's always some sort of chase, right? And we're chasing the past or we're chasing the future. And in a weird way, success is always bound to chasing. And chasing is a type of attachment. Attachment is suffering, right? So in a weird way, success is failure because success always leads us to some sort of misery or some some sort of suffering, or at least the, the chasing of success. And just like that, the Australian dream has been cleft in twain. By <laughs> <laughs> there is a point though, there's research has been done. There's a point where once you get above this amount of income, it kind of stops mattering. Yeah. I mean, I think in our film, Minimalism, which uh, I believe that was wrapped up in like 2015, 2016. So, you know, five or six years ago, the, the number was like 70,000 dollars a year, at least with American households. And, you know, that number is, it's always, you know, been a bit debatable, but it usually falls around that much. Now with inflation, that probably has increased a little bit. But, you know, all that to say is we do need some money, right? Like we have to pay to keep the lights on. We have to put food on the table. We have to pay our rent, pay our mortgage. Um, We got to pay our our kids, you know, school fees, whatever it is. But, but yes, uh, there, there's been quite a few studies done that say once the necessities are met, once the needs are met, anything above that, you really are getting an incremental burst of joy or incremental burst of happiness. So one who makes $80,000 versus $150,000, uh, the study shows that those two households or, or those two people who make that, they're not... Uh, appreciably different in their their level of happiness. I think the the problem is we we've we've all met really unhappy rich people. Mm. We've met really happy rich people as well, and and so there isn't a direct correlation between the amount of income. And I even have a little bit of a problem with the study that says seventy thousand dollars is because the problem is like yes that that will get you a certain level of comfort, but sometimes we mistake discomfort with a, a lack of happiness, right? But quite often it's the opposite. Pleasure is, is often the enemy of contentment because it's always that next ephemeral burst of, of dopamine. And, and so we are constantly scrolling or we're constantly replying or seeking and searching, chasing, channel surfing, et cetera. And we're looking for that next burst of pleasure, but often there's nothing wrong with pleasure. Uh, you know, I'm not an ascetic in, in that way, but there are plenty of people who, make far less than $70,000. And they're so much more content, at peace, tranquil, filled with equanimity uh, than the people who are making you know, seven figures a year. And it's not to say that one is inherently bad, one is inherently good. It's just to be careful with the idea that more money is going to make me happier when it will probably get you more pleasure, but that's not going to increase your contentment. Well, you know, it's interesting. Like I've been to some third world countries and, you know, really immersed in in some culture, like over in Laos specifically. And, you know, no one there that I could tell was making a lot of money. I mean, they were, they had walls on most, you know, of their house. They were, there there were some, some impoverished situations, but they were really, really, really happy people. 
And kind of what I noticed is, you know, one of the reasons they might be a bit happier, what not making, you know, not even 70,000 a year is the fact that they're not exposed to 5,000 advertisements a day. Because here in the US, we are exposed to about 5,000 advertisements every single day. And those advertisements, they are making us feel less. They're making us feel like we're missing something. They're making us feel like we're missing out. They're, they're definitely playing on that, you know, that FOMO thing that, that human beings have. Yeah, at the core of that messaging of every ad, it's the, the core of effective marketing. I was listening to a dollop the other day. I think it started with underarm deodorant. Is selling the shame that you're not enough. Selling this shame of like, other people think you're shit because you don't have this thing. And that's the core of every ad we see, no matter what. The ad is, wouldn't your life be so much better if you had this? <laughs> and, and you know, you the three of us right now, like we could say, well, of course, we're, we're going to be just as happy. Uh, it, it doesn't matter what deodorant we use. But when you see that many advertisements, like there is something that is seeding in the subconscious mm. that you don't even realize is affecting your your decision making. That's affecting uh, the impulses that we have. And you know, over and I just think you know back to Lao, like they, they don't they're not exposed to that many advertisements a day. Where in the U.S. and I'm sure it's very similar in Australia. It's uh, yeah, it's definitely a problem. Advertisements suck. <laughs> What's the um? So I, I could just imagine, like, if it was if it was you suddenly going right, I'm going to transplant, I'm going to pop myself in Laos, and now happiness. Your entire life of this kind of intense indoctrination into stuff equals good, more stuff equals more happy. You want not successful until you have this item, this trophy, this medallion, this Lexus next to another Lexus. If I had to snap it to it tomorrow, it would be a rough re-entry for me. I would be, it would mm. be hard. Like, what do you mean? I don't have my coffee machine. What the fuck? No, I need a grinder. I need my grinder. Like, <laughs> you know, what was it like for you guys when you started to shed essentially the the stuff, the things, the the petrochemical <laughs> stuff that had been accumulating yeah. in your homes. No, well, you know, I think, so for me, it got to a point where, man, I was using a lot of drugs and alcohol to cope um, because I, I had gotten, you know, everything I ever wanted and then it wasn't making me happy. So I'm like, oh, I can, I can pacify myself and I can get through this anxiety and I can shove all this down if, you know, if I just drink enough and if I just, you know, do enough drugs and then any alcoholic or drug addict will tell you like those eventually stop working. And I just remember, you know, kind of being at my wits end and I noticed something different in Josh and he was behaving differently. And he can kind of tell you his story about how he came into minimalism. But for me, it was through Josh. I went to him and I'm like, Hey, what's going on with you, man? Why the hell are you so happy? And that's when he introduced to me this idea of minimalism. And when he explained it to me, he just kind of showed me different people, Leo Babauta, Courtney Carver, Joshua Becker. It was all these people who were living extremely different lives, but they were all living meaningful lives. And they were using this thing called minimalism to, to do this. And it really came down to just some common sense things. And unfortunately, you know, common sense, it's, it's not that common these days. So I'm like, great, man. I, I want to be a minimalist. I'm in. I'll do it. Uh, now what? Like, I didn't really know what to do. <laughs> And that's where we came up with this idea of the packing party because I knew I had too much stuff and I knew I had to do something about it. And this idea of the packing party was me packing up all my belongings as if I were moving. Josh came over and helped. And then I would unpack things as I needed it over the next three weeks to really get clear on what was adding value to my life. So Josh came over, he helped me pack up my clothes, my kitchenware, my towels, my TVs, my electronics, my frame photographs and paintings, my toiletries. I mean, even my furniture, everything. We literally pretended like I was moving. So you can imagine like on that first night, I'm unpacking some you know, bed and bed sheets, some clothes for work, 
as the time goes on, you know, the furniture I actually used, uh, some kitchenware. Yes, my coffee maker. I didn't do uh, ground coffee at the time. I was doing the little K cups things, uh, <laughs> but I certainly unpacked that. You know that that first Blasphemy. that first morning. So yeah, for me, it was this light bulb moment after the end of those three weeks because I had eighty percent of my stuff still sitting in those boxes, just sitting there unaccessed. And I just had this realization that, wow, like here's, here are these tens of thousands of dollars worth of things I've brought into my life to make me happy and they're not doing their job. So for me, that was like my first step of really decluttering or, or purging everything that I had. But the decluttering was, I didn't realize it was just like this first part of this journey we've been on for the last 12 years. Because once I got rid of the stuff, it really opened my eyes towards other things in my life. Like who am I as a person? Uh, how am I going to define success? What are my values? Um, what kind of people am I actually being around? So yes, this stuff was was quite the shocker, but it really was kind of the initial bite of the apple. But that that whole packing party story, that's really where the minimalists.com started. It was with that. But I'd just like to you know, point it out. We're, we're three white guys that grew up in relatively safe parts of the world. You did mention that you did grow up economically not as great as a lot of people in the community. Josh, but we're, we're still with three white guys talking about, yeah, it's amazing. Throw all your things away. Is it a, a mm-hmm. privilege to be able to do this? Where does that stand? Where do you sit on that? Yeah, well, what a wonderful privilege to, to have too much stuff. Totally agree with that. I mean, you, if you take a look at our last film, for example, on Netflix, it's called uh, The Minimalist Less Is Now. What we did is we, it wasn't just our story, although we talk about Ryan's packing party in there, sort of do a reenactment in there. But we find a bunch of people who have been affected deeply by this message of living more intentionally with less stuff. It really does start with the stuff. But you'll notice in, in that film, people from all walks of life, young, old, I mean, literally, we have a 17-year-old and a 70-year-old in the film. Both of them are saying eerily similar things about letting go. They may be in a different chapter in their life, but they're noticing some of the same or similar benefits. You have, you know, black, white, Hispanic, all, all different people from different ethnicities, but also just different viewpoints as well. Uh, whether it's, you know, Republican, Democrat, all, all of these other things, they sort of tend to fade away when we realize like, oh, I've been pacifying myself. I don't think minimalism is for everyone. I want to be clear about that. I think maybe half the population is really content with the status quo. And it's not my job to convince them, nor do I want to convince them. I think con- trying to convince someone of anything thing is unloving. And so what we're simply trying to do is illuminate some truths about the stuff. It's not going to make you happy. It's going to bring you some additional pleasure in your life. Uh, But at the same time, getting rid of your stuff is not going to make you happy either. It might make some room for introspection. Some, Some people will call into our podcast occasionally and they'll say, hey, you know, I got rid of all my stuff and why didn't it make me happy? And well, the answer to that is, well, because you wanted it to make you happy. The same reason that accumulating it didn't make you happy is the same reason that getting rid of it isn't going to make you happy. Yeah, I think decluttering doesn't work. I think decluttering and organizing, this whole industry around organizing is a big problem. Because if you own too much stuff, and I were to send you a video with 67 decluttering tips, that video is not going to help you. Your problem is not a shortage of decluttering tips, right? The, the, The problem is... You have an attachment to the stuff like we all do. As you said earlier, you know, we, we've been acculturated to believe certain things are successful, are good. We've moralized everything. And we've become so attached to our things that we love our things, right? I mean, that's one of the 
the big problems that we have in this society is we love our things. I mean, it's the name of the new book, right? Love people use things because Ryan and I found that we were loving things and using people. And in a weird way, we kind of have this language problem, right? I love my wife, but I also love burritos, right? <laughs> uh, I, I love my best friend, Ryan, but I also, yeah, I, I love the new Andrew Bell album or something. And it's like, well, wait a minute. I love my daughter, but I also love the colors of the flowers in my neighborhood. And, and one just sort of means extreme like. The other is about a bottomless devotion that's birthed from deep affection. And so we, we get really confused. The uh, Up in Canada, the Inuits have this... Um, have a dialect that they speak there and none of it, they have 53 words for snow. And we don't even have two words for love to describe different types of love. Imagine if we had even half of those 53 words to describe love. But the problem is, no, we don't. We just stretch that word to mean like, um, oh, I love my pickup truck. And and I, I also love people. I love my friends and I love fried chicken. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> the, I, I do actually i love the novel book uh love people use things because the opposite never works it's a, a freaking great title but I, I do have like i was just thinking about yes things i can love i i, I was thinking about my motorbike mm-hmm. do i love my motorbike or do i love how it feels do i love the experience that owning this object mm. gives me i love riding my bicycle with my friends i love getting mm. on the road bike going for a ride with my friends it's a thing Here's the truth about our things. They can amplify our experience of life. They can enhance our experience of life. And so Ryan and I aren't anti-thing. We're not anti-consumption. Consumption Consumption is not the problem. Consumerism is the problem. The ideology that consuming is going to make us happy or fulfilled. That's not to say that our things can't augment our life. They can amplify the happiness that already exists within us. Happiness can't be purchased. One of the, the biggest problems we have is we even hear this phrase, right? The pursuit of happiness. Well, what kind of nonsense is that? That's a, that's a fancy way of saying chasing. Chasing is attachment. Attachment is suffering. Happiness certainly is not suffering. And, and so what I've learned with what Ryan and I have, have been doing for the last dozen years now is, yes, the things are really important. But when we have so many things, we treat everything as precious. Well, if everything's precious, then nothing's precious. If everything's important, then nothing is important in my life. And the problem is, it'd be great if those 300,000 items increased and amplif- all of them amplified our happiness. But that, we know that's not happening. They're actually getting in the way. They're making us more discontent. We never stop to think about the actual cost of a thing. You know, there's the price tag. If you buy a widget for $20, fine. But the actual cost of the thing goes way beyond the price tag. There's the cost of storing the thing and cleaning the thing and worrying about the thing and securing the thing and changing the batteries in the thing or putting gas in the thing. Whatever it might be, there's all these hidden costs, psychological costs, the emotional costs. They go way beyond the price tag. Yeah. Josh and I, we're not ever trying to make people feel guilty for the things that they have. The fact that you have a motorbike and you really get you know, an awesome experience out of that, you get to hang out with your friends. And, and yes, I would say that it's, it's the experience that that bike gives you. It's not the bike itself. And yes, uh, to say that you love that experience with your friends, I mean, I, I think that's awesome. I mean, if it really, if it, it would be easy if we had like this list of 150 things that every person should own. <laughs> and then if they had a kid, here's the additional 50 things. And, and these are the things that you need to be perfectly balanced and perfectly happy and, and perfectly content. But, but it's not that easy. Uh, you know, living a simple life 
it sounds easy, right? But but simple is not easy. Simple is it's a lot of work. It's about being deliberate. So you know that Josh and I we really want to help people who find themselves stressed out with their things when they're stressed out with the status quo. We just want to give people you know a recipe that Josh and I have used to help us really get clear on what those things are that really help us to be happy. And yes, like actual things can totally augment our experience. But you know, in our book, it goes so much further than just items. It goes so much further than just what to purchase. We talk about our relationship with, and, and that's really what this book is. It's a relationship book. But you know, we talk about our relationship with people. We talk about our relationship with our finances, our relationship with the truth, our relationship with creativity. And it's really when we focus on these things that we can live a meaningful life. The book's about connecting with other human beings. Mm. Has somewhere, has the system of consumerism inserted itself between I feel uncomfortable to feel better about how I feel right now, I should connect with a person? Has the system of consumerism inserted itself between this feeling of ickiness in our body and go, well, if you buy something, you don't have to go to all the trouble of actually then listening to someone else's problems too. He just have this thing, hold this thing, and you won't have to listen to their shit for a while. Is that where we've kind of tripped ourselves up? Yeah, the, the, the sort of transactional nature of our relationships, hence the opposite never working, right? Because if we use people and love things, well, then the using people has now commodified our love. But that's not love at all. To love is simply to see things as they are, not as we wish they would be. And when I think about love that way, it's not trying to change anyone else. It's not trying to coerce them. It's not trying to persuade them. It's simply loving them for who they are, warts and all. And I find that's really difficult because of self-righteousness in a way. We all desire to be right. But but righteousness basically just fuels the ego. And I feel like our culture has sort of moralized everything. You know, you should do this. You shouldn't do that. You should wake up early. You shouldn't eat carbs after three, whatever it is. Like we've, we, we've moralized everything. But we really know, I think we intrinsically know that correct and incorrect are, are personal. They're situational. They're, they're perspectival. And they're really detrimental if we use them as universal prescriptions. There is no should. There's nothing you're supposed to do. And I think that anyone who tells you otherwise, anyone who tries to change you, that's the, the ugly hubris of the ego on display. And so, yes, uh, the book is about relationships, but it's not a traditional relationship book. We wanted it to be initially, but we realized like, oh, there are a lot of other relationships sort of sort of stand in our way of the most meaningful relationships in our life, our connection with other people. And, and that's where we got into, okay, the relationship with the stuff. It starts with the stuff as, as the minimalist, but also in our culture, it starts with you know, our material possessions are a physical manifestation of what's going on inside us. So if you have a lot of physical clutter in your life, there's a great chance that you have a lot of emotional clutter, a lot of spiritual clutter, mental clutter, career clutter, relationship clutter in your life. And part of that is because we say yes to everything. Being busy is a sign of, of success in our culture as well. So we say yes, 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 yes. Unfortunately, when we do that, we end up saying no to the things that are most important. We end up saying no to our own tranquility because we're saying yes to everyone else's expectations in a way. And so the, the book is really about how do we heal, not prescriptively how, but, but like what conditions need to be present in order for us to heal these seven essential relationships in our life. Mm -hmm. 
And, and how do I better understand myself so that I can better understand that relationship with others? Ryan, when it does come to those relationship moments that can be a little tricky, a, a way that many of us seek to get some respite is either open your phone or if you could be bothered, if you're allowed to leave the house, go and buy some shit. You know, if I'm mm-hmm. having a hard time with my husband, with my wife, with my boyfriend, with my girlfriend, with my kids, I'm going to go buy some shit. I'm going to go down to the bicycle store and see if they have a bottle cage in carbon fiber because, you know, you always got to have an MK. You know, it's got to be. <laughs> All right. It's got to be carbon fiber. Well, have you got a carbon fiber bell? Because my bell's too heavy right now. That's why I'm going so slow up that Strava segment because my <laughs> bell is too fucking heavy. How can we interrupt that? Say we're having a difficult time with a person in our life that we love and we are going to our phone or going down to the store to go, if I buy something, I'll feel better. How can we interrupt that? What's some ways that we can work around that? Because that might be a thing that's, you know, we can start with. Uh, people listening might be able to start there. For me, like when it comes to relationships with people specifically, uh, if I'm having a hard time with a relationship, um, I have to really ask myself, like, wh- what am I doing that is causing this relationship to be uh, tumultuous? Like, what, what am I doing that isn't adding to this relationship? And there's a few things, you know, there's this first thing you can look at is there's something in every relationship, whether it's a romantic relationship, a friendship, a partnership, whatever it is, there is an us box. And, you know, the first question I'll ask myself, like if me and my woman, if we're not getting along or something's going on, I have to ask myself, like, when's the last time I gave to that us box? Because if I just take, 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 well, that's not going to create a very powerful relationship. The other thing I'll ask too is, Whenever you're talking to someone, whether it's, again, romantic, relationship, partnership, friendship, whenever we're having a conversation, whenever we're dealing with these relationships, there's really three things that we want out of this relationship. We want to be respected, we want to be understood, and we want to be loved. And I think that often I am especially guilty of this when I maybe get a little defensive or I feel like I'm on guard. I forget about those three things. So when it comes to a bad relationship or a rocky place in a relationship, I have to ask myself, am I going out of my way to show the other person that I understand them? Because that's that's what they want. Am I going out of my way to respect them? Because that's what they want. Am I going out of my way to love them? And that those are three things that someone can ask very easily. Now, is that going to fix every single relationship? No, but I do promise that if you know anyone listening to this, if they can stop and ask themselves about the us box, if they can ask themselves about these, these three things in a relationship, I guarantee that a lot of them will at least give way, give room for the other person to start opening up and, and to start uh, having a better relationship. Not every single person is going to react you know, great to that. I mean, I've had some, you know, unfortunately, some toxic people in my life that I've had to um, love from a distance. I've had to not spend as much time with them. But you know, a lot of the, a lot of the times, those people that I kind of step away from, often, uh, if I continue to give to the us box to show love, respect, uh, understanding. They usually oftentimes come around. In fact, I can't really think of anyone in my life right now who hasn't come full circle and like really uh, has approached the way that they treat our relationship. There's some family members who, you know, for the longest time, they really were, you know, just judging me on being a minimalist, uh, judging me about talking about the past and, you know, with my childhood and, and things like that. But, you know, I was just, at a, uh, well, I guess it wasn't just, it was like Thanksgiving 2019, 2020 is really kind of, I, I block it out. So it feels like it was pretty recent, but in 2019, I was at a Thanksgiving with family event and I had this family member come up to me and they were just like, Hey, you know what, Ryan? Like, I'm really sorry. 
I didn't see you for who you were earlier, but I can really see that, you know, you are being a genuine person. You're being consistent. And uh, I just want to let you know that I support you. So that's the other thing too, is being consistent is also something that can really help uh, a relationship uh, flourish. The idea of an us box and putting things in the us box is a really powerful. That's like the, if you, you've just summed up in like two minutes, the, is your marriage on the rocks counseling weekend that people go away to? <laughs> like, that's pretty much it. Because when, when the chips are down, when shit's going on, that's when you open that box back up, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And you can really draw on that. You don't want to wait for that box to be empty. Right. hundred percent. And I was, I was really guilty of that. And you know, Josh and I both were guilty of that. And we talk about that in this book, Love People Use Things. And really, that's kind of one of the things I really like about this book that we're getting ready to put out here on on July 13th is that we kind of expose ourselves, like we kind of, you know, cut ourselves open and spilled our guts onto the pages and really just kind of talked about how we took advantage of people, how we we took advantage of situations and what we did to correct those situations. And, And I think really like, isn't that the best way to learn? Honestly, like it's great to have like a saint that you can look up to and be like, man, that person was just, they lived a perfect life and I aspire to live a perfect life. But you know, that's such an exception. The rule is most of us are, are, are screw ups. And I, and I think personally, I learn more from the people who screw up and then, you know, take a turn to better their lives and learn from those mistakes rather than, you know, someone who I put on a pedestal. Yeah, we did a lot of fucked up shit. Yeah, <laughs> and, and uh, I mean, this has really been our first opportunity to talk about some of the things that we've we haven't felt comfortable talking about. Now, here, here's the weird thing: like we all do those kinds of things, maybe not to the same degree that Ryan and I did, but we all feel shame around it. And so, the truth is that like the things that Ryan and I have dealt with with respect to infidelity or being arrested or drugs and alcohol, all of these these things like these happen to everyday people all the time, but we pretend as though they don't. And we all have some sort of past and we've gone through that past. The past doesn't equal the future. That is sort of a, an ancestor that birthed me in a way, my former self, but that doesn't have to, to be me and be able to talk about these things in an open forum like this after enough time has, has passed. It does help with our shame, but the hope is that it, helps other people with their shame as well. Mm. You mentioned this just a moment ago, guys, and I'm hoping you might be able to go into it. You've obviously talked a lot about taking things out of your life, things that don't serve you, things that take up RAM, things that take up space in your brain. What's the approach when it comes to, to people that may not be serving you? I'm not talking to the point where like, I'm obviously right here. You have to leave. Like this person's calling me on my bullshit. So therefore they have to go. It's like, I'm cause you're too afraid to face your own shit. Like I'm talking more about people that mm-hmm. might be perhaps not good for us. People that may be toxic for us. I've got this rule called the willing to walk rule. Do you remember that movie heat with Robert De Niro and Al Pacino? Oh man. Come on. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I, I don't know. Look, I'm, I'm 11 years sober, mate. There was a lot of movies I watched before that. that I might've, <laughs> I might've seen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. So it's a '90s movie with uh, Robert De Niro. Yeah, anyway, definitely not remember that. Robert De Niro's uh, the bad guy in yeah. the film. So I don't aspire to be like him, but I took away one life lesson from it. He there was a, a moment in the film where he says, "Don't bring any anything into your life that you're not prepared to walk away from in 30 seconds flat." And I took that literally when we first started the whole minimalism thing. I'm like, that's a great lesson for the stuff. But I also think that's true even for our relationships. Now, bear with me. I know that sounds crass and it sounds cold at first, right? But 
What's the alternative to that? Staying in a relationship out of obligation? And if so, is that love? No, I mean, I, so my wife and I, we, we talk about this and I certainly don't want her to stay in this relationship because she feels obligated. I, I want her to be able to, to talk honestly, open uh, about whatever she has on her mind. And if she decides that she wants to walk away from the relationship or vice versa, we need to be able to put that on the table. That way we know we're both in this because we want to be in it. It's not an obligatory relationship because that's an opposite of a, a loving relationship. That's a, a conditional love, which is really an oxymoron in a way. There's no such thing as, as conditional love. If you place conditions on love, it's no longer love. It's extreme like, or it's lust, or it's something else other than love. I don't know, man. It gets a bit tricky. Certainly if they're relying on you for financial or you're relying on them for some sort of financial thing and there's kids involved, it's it's uh, sometimes it's a little harder to say, okay, 30 seconds, I'm gone. Right, right. And so it doesn't have to be literal, right, in terms of, of 30 seconds. But but I think the core of the principle still stands. It's a willingness to walk away from anything in our life. You know, and there, there are plenty of mystics who have done a happiness experiment like this. You know, if you would you rather be happy or would you rather be with your with your partner, right? And so when you think about it, is the truth that you would, if you had to choose one between the other, would you choose happiness or would you choose being with your partner? Because here's a fundamental truth for you. And this is also going to sound crass, but every relationship in your life is going to bring you misery. But that's a part of life. Like there is no happiness without sadness. There is no joy, love without heartbreak. It is a part of accepting this. Susan David says, you know, the uncomfortable feelings are the price of admission to a meaningful life. That's what it is. Amen. Amen. And, and so when you think about it this way, when you say, okay, because you know every relationship in your life that you've chosen intentionally is also going to bring some sort of happiness to you and, and joy to you as well, right? And so we better choose carefully what relationships we bring in our life. There's a line in the book, you can't change the people around you, but you can change the people around you. So let's break that down real quick. So you can't change anyone. I mean, you can hold a gun to their head and tell them to change their beliefs or their personality or whatever, and they'll change momentarily, but that's not a real change. But you can surround yourself with supportive people, not necessarily like-minded people, but open-minded people, people with similar values. Ryan and I have similar values. We have radically different personalities, though. If you look at us on a Myers-Briggs test, we're literally exact opposites. <laughs> we have different political beliefs. We vote for different people in elections. We, we, we have different spiritual and religious beliefs about God. But even though we have different beliefs, we have very similar values. So getting really clear on what our values are uh, has allowed our relationship to thrive and not just survive over the years. Can you take us through that, Ryan? I mean, to hear someone with an American accent saying, I don't know, I work with a guy that that uh, votes for a different party than me. It's like, you, that's almost <laughs> like a fairy story. You know, from here, it's like, if you have a, an American flag on your lawn, like you just, you won't look in the eye of anyone <laughs> that mm -hmm. thinks any, any different. Can you talk us through that, Ryan, about how the two of you have been able to maintain this working relationship and what it, for other people listening, how they might be able to identify those common values that allow someone of a completely different background or belief system to come together on a, on a particular idea? Yeah. Man, isn't it unfortunate that, I mean, that is the way it is right now. Is, oh, is, same here, mate. Don't worry that. about it. Same here. Like this place is fucked. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, it's really unfortunate. But 
You know, I think when it comes to values, I mean, Josh and I do value the same things. We and, and really not just Josh and I, but you know, everyone in like the United States, for example, in Australia, for that matter, everyone values peace, right? Like th- that is something that everyone can agree on. Everyone values the, the the ability to be left alone. Everyone values the you know f- free speech and things like that. And now we get into some nuances that can really separate people. But I think when it comes to Josh and I. We, we don't let the nuances get in the way. What, what we see with each other is that when it comes to the core values, those are very, very similar. And I'll tell you what's really nice about having someone who with, with some ideologies ha- has different thoughts than me. It's nice to have someone to talk to about this who is challenging me. Because often, you know, Josh and I, when we talk, one or two things are going to happen. Um, we are going to either be further rooted in our current beliefs, or our perspective might be shifted just slightly enough to maybe see the other person's point of view. And the way that we get there is, it goes back to that that understanding, that love, that respect. Like when we have conversations, we don't escalate the conversation. It's not about right and wrong. It's it's about having a, a, a true conversation with hearing each other's perspectives. And that is so valuable. I'll tell you, you know, back in 2016, it's like, we, I was living in Missoula, Montana. And I remember, you know, Trump got elected. And I just remember thinking like, how did this happen? Like, what the heck happened? You know? And I realized what I had done to myself is I put myself in this bubble of just being with like-minded people who had the same perspectives. And it really hurt me in a way because it, I didn't see outside of that bubble. And what I've really done, and we've wrote about this on our website, you know, I've went out of my way to see other people's perspectives, to see where they're coming from. And I approach it in a way of curiosity, not in a way of trying to change someone's mind, not in a way of, of me proving that I'm right. It's really about hearing, hearing someone else's point of view. And I think if people could in a, in a very adult way, I mean, really, that's what it comes down to. Josh and I are adults when we talk to each other, to listen to each other's perspectives. We don't escalate the situation. We really want to find out and get to the, the deep understanding that, that each other has. And I, I think that's possible for anyone to do. And I just want to be clear too, there, in 2016, there were more than two candidates to vote for for president. <laughs> just to be clear. <laughs> oh, don't worry. It's the, like I said, man, it's the same here. It's, it's bananas. The, the accumulation of stuff sometimes, not all the time, sometimes has a link to some sort of trauma in the past. We can become a little like magpies or bowerbirds. You know, we just collect things and shove them underneath us to try to make us feel safe. But as long as I'm holding heaps of shit, everything's going to be all right. The more stuff I'm holding on my hands, the safer that I feel. Can that be the same with people? Well, yeah, we we did a a podcast episode about hoarding and really dove into the the literature, the research on on this. And what's fascinating, I'll tell you that you're probably at least a level one hoarder if you're just the average American. Ryan and I, and some, so there's five levels of hoarding. So there's level one, level two, level three, level four, level five. Level five is is, are the people you tend to see on on your TV screen, right? Where it's there's human feces in, in the home and there is rotting food on surfaces and, you know, non-working refrigerators with like dead cats in it. And, 
Yeah, we associate that. And that is clearly a, a, some people even say it's on the OCD spectrum. There's some some disagreements among psychologists as to whether or not it is. It does seem to me like it, it at least correlates pretty strongly with obsessive compulsive disorder. And I'm someone who has obsessive compulsive disorder, so I can relate to it. But then you have like level one, two and three. And you know what? I think there's a lot of people. The majority of people are at least level one hoarders. Only a couple criteria are necessary to meet that. So um, light amounts of clutter throughout your house, but no noticeable odors. But strangely, like if you have light amounts of clutter peppered throughout the house, you're considered to be a level one hoarder and, and diagnosed that way by professionals. Level two gets a little bit more dicey where there's like Maybe there's rodents in the house or there's pet waste on the floor. You know, there, there maybe is an unusable bathroom or bedroom somewhere in the house. So it, level two, level three start to, to go into those, those areas. But what's fascinating about hoarding is like, oh, I realize that I can have compassion because we're all hypocrites in a way. And I think one of the problems we have to, to piggyback on what Ryan was saying earlier about how we get along is having compassion for one another. Mm. You know, realizing that we are all hypocrites. You know, it's like when you see the, the man who's protesting capitalism, but he's using a megaphone he purchased from Walmart. And you're like, well, wait a minute. Or you see someone who tweets about income inequality on a device that was made by underpaid workers. <laughs> or, or you find the environmentalist who flies to their next Save the Planet rally. Yeah, all of these things, right? The minimalist who owns six jackets like me. And you're like, well, wait a minute, you hypocrite. <laughs> uh, and you realize like, oh, yeah, yeah, we're all hypocrites. We're all suffering on some level. And so instead of pointing fingers at each other, we can find compassion for the people we disagree with, you know, the people who make us angry, the people who are on the quote wrong side of the issue. And part of the problem is really my beliefs, my opinions. And, and I've come to realize recently, and just within the last year or so, how little my opinion matters. My opinion doesn't matter. And uh, what matters is the truth. And often my opinions, my beliefs cloud the truth. Just before we get back to our conversation with Josh and Ryan, I wanted to take a moment to talk to you about Idol Australians. It's the new podcast I'm doing with James Matheson. Yeah, James Matheson, who I did Australian Idol with for a very long time and did Channel V. We worked together about 10, 10 straight years we worked together. And he's a great mate, and I'm really grateful that he and I are able to make a, a podcast together. It's going great, Guns. And uh, this week, we spoke to Ryan, who was one half of Cheese TV, another super famous I guess duo, you'd call them, a TV duo. A nation of people grew up watching them in the mornings. I grew up watching them in the mornings. They were like 15 years younger than me. But it was a really interesting conversation talking about what it's like to grow up on TV and be a teenager on TV and, you know, what that show meant to a whole generation of people. As well as that, Jim and I shared a few uh, conversations. We generally have a bit of a chat. It was a great chat this week. Do you remember that biker pub we went to? I do remember going to a biker pub and I remember walking in there and it felt like one of those westerns where the saloon doors swing open and the piano player stops playing. When us city kids from Sydney roll into a biker bar in Darwin. There were some pretty rough neck, a lot of face tattoos. Not artistic face tattoos, face tattoos that were codes for I've done shit. Don't order a shandy. That would be my tip. Idle Australians is found wherever you find your podcasts. Uh, here, Spotify, 
on your mum's phone, if you want to download it on her phone, wherever you want to put it. Idle Australians, we're out every Thursday. All right, you might hear an ad here. If you do, thanks. If not, we're getting back to the minimalists. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. It would be impossible. Like I'm, I'm, I'm a plant-based person. I don't say vegan because that means people go, yeah, well, you take meds and the part of those meds are... Like, it's a race right. to purity that's impossible. It's a line that will never, ever approaches but will never touch zero. So like, where do you guys stand on personal choice in this and the greater systemic problem? that Because surely there's massive society-wide health impacts by what you guys are talking about and what you guys are trying to kind of bring to the world. Where do you guys stand on, look, at some point it goes beyond your personal choice? Like I can turn off all the light bulbs in my house all I like, but until my government decides to get clean energy to the entire grid, it won't make a shadow of difference. Where do you guys stand on like a more systemic change? Yeah, I don't know that it's one or the other, right? It it seems to me like like systemic change – is a must in many instances. And and you know, with the food thing in particular, the problem isn't just like, well, vegans versus carnivores or whatever. And in fact, that is a problem. When we start to otherize everyone else, it, it becomes tribalism. Tribalism is different from community. Community unites around something, tribes unite against something. And so one of my closest friends, Rich Roll, he out here in, in Los Angeles, you know, obviously a huge plant-based athlete, really is you know, a beautiful human being. And he is a giant proponent of community. I never hear him railing against other people. And I think he's probably made more change in the plant-based community than just about anyone because he's not, he, he isn't forcing a dogma on anyone. And yet he is living as a shining example of someone who lives out his values. But the problem is really that most food isn't food. And I say the first food in sort of quotes, right? Any sort of package process nonsense. It's in the middle of the store. Like, can you have a unhealthy vegan diet? Yeah. You could eat Oreos all day. I and mean, that's not a, it's technically vegan, but you're going to die in a year, I bet. Right. And so that, that's not what you're talking about when you talk about a plant-based diet, you know, just because something is plant-based does not make it inherently healthy and vice versa. Just because something has you know, gluten in it doesn't mean that it's, uh, you know, or if it's gluten-free, doesn't mean it's healthy either, right? In fact, many of these things are simply marketing terms invented by ad agencies to aggregate <laughs> your eyeballs onto their product and service so they can sell you more of their packaged nonsense at an inflated price. Yeah, I think, you know, we get caught up in prescriptions and especially when it comes to diet. And, you know, uh, Josh actually did a podcast with uh, Rich Roll, 
and uh, he brought a, a carnivore on. Was it Paul Saladino? Is that yeah. who it was? Yeah. So you had you had this plant based person, you had this carnivore based person, and they were both kind of talking about why their diet was best for them. And they really were able to come to a place where it, that's exactly it. They were able to explain why the diet that they chose was best for them. And we, you know, of course, if we find something that works for us, uh, we want to tell other people about it in case that maybe it works for them. But when you start to make people feel bad for making the choices they they do, I think that's really where we get caught up. But, you know, especially when it comes to diet, we have to be clear on what our bodies need. I mean, I know we're all, you know, we're all humans, but, you know, on a cellular level, we're all a little bit different. And, you know, for Rich Roll, the plant-based works great. For uh, Paul Saladino, the carnivore diet works great for him. Personally, Josh and I, we fall somewhere in between. But again, I think people are looking for a prescription because that's the easy thing, right? I mean, going back to advertisements, that's what advertisements are. I mean, so, you know, in the US, there are literal drugs prescriptions that are prescribed. That is the easy fix. But also you look at, you know, the next biggest and latest TV, that's an easy fix for how well, this is going to bring you happiness. And I think when we stop looking for prescriptions and we start looking for what's best for us, I think that's when we can really start to kind of filter through all of this noise. It's not rocket surgery, but it seems that what you guys are, are talking about is that, especially with the new book, Love People Use Things, because the opposite never works, is that the answer's really been there all along, hasn't it? Mm. Yeah, it, it's the, the happiness thing we talked about earlier. It can't be pursued. The, the path to peace can only be uncovered. There isn't a path to peace. It, it, you're not going to get there. When we, we talk about doing less, it's never about the doing. It's about the less. And so I think we get very caught up, as Ryan just talked about, with the prescriptions. It's always do. And we have even have this acronym in the Western world, GTD, get things done, as though that is virtuous and helpful. But of course, if you're just busy all the time, spinning your wheels, to me, busy is like the worst four-letter word in the English language. We talk about a curse word. Anytime anyone accuses me of being busy, I just sort of wince and remind them that I'm not busy, I'm focused. Now, I lived a very busy life for a very long time. And it's because I said yes to everyone else's to-do list. And it's very easy to do that because these things get thrust upon us and we decide that we're either going to say yes to this or we're afraid of disappointing someone else. And so we simply let our priorities slip in order to appease everyone around us. Well, we're all uh, here in Australia. Unfortunately, we're looking like we're going to be waiting a very long time to get vaccinated because uh, there's some things that I'm agreeing with you on. But as far as accruing vaccines for a country, I'd be pretty fucking happy if our government had focused on that um but they haven't really uh so it looks oh, like oh. we're going to be in lockdown for a little while here so there's plenty of time for us to go through and have our own packing parties um <laughs> which is honestly i spent a fair bit of last year's lockdown doing that it was actually pretty good i, I packed away clothes i haven't touched in a year and then you know what after speaking to you boys i might go and give them to vinnie's because I don't, I honestly haven't touched them in a year, so I don't Bravo. need them. And you know what's amazing about that is you're not finding value in those clothes, and, no. and that's great that you've been able to acknowledge that. But by giving those away, by donating those, you're going to give someone else an opportunity to find value in those clothes that you no longer do. So I, I think that's wonderful, man. Good work. Because obscure Australian Brisbane band T-shirts from the mid '90s are in high demand <laughs> down. <at> the- <laughs> you know, we just had someone on our podcast who. Uh, he was an artist and he repurposes old 
uh, shirts and makes like one of one pieces of artwork. His name is Chris Bailey. He has, he has this uh, project called the One Off Project, where literally every every item is a one of one. He takes an old vintage piece of clothing and then turns it into a wearable piece of art. Wow. And man, it's uh, you know, talk about being deliberate with it. And it's so much more deliberate than if I were just to leave it in my closet and selfishly cling to all of the, <laughs> you know, the oversized orange sweatshirt with tassels that I haven't worn since the uh, mid oddies. Yeah. I don't need my FUBU hoodie anymore. As, as cool as it was, I really don't need my FUBU hoodie. Gentlemen, it's so great to have you on the show. Thank you so much. And um, the reason that I was needing a carbon fiber bottle cage was because I could never catch Rich Roll up Latigo Canyon when I used to go riding with him. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Please give him my best. I miss him a lot. It's been a, been a long time, too long since I've seen him, uh, but give him a hug for me. Thanks heaps for your time. I really appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks for having us. That was Josh Fields Milburn and Ryan Nicodemus, The Minimalists. You can find their series on Netflix. They've got a brand new book called Love People, Use Things Because the Opposite Never Works. I love what they're about. Uh, thanks heaps for listening. If you like the show, please share the show. Just tell a friend. That's the best thing you can do for me. Second best thing you can do for me is to rate and review the show wherever you can rate and review the show. I'd really appreciate it. Thanks so much uh, for being a part of it. Send us a email at gmail.com. That's where I am. And uh, yeah, if you need anything, just yeah, let me know. Look after yourselves. Country's going through a lot of shit right now. The world's going through a lot of shit right now. But uh, look, we're going to be okay. Day at a time, thought at a time, breath at a time. We'll be all right. <sighs> all right. I'll see you Thursday for Idle Australians with Jimmy. And I'm back here on Friday. Until we speak then, sleep well and dream of beautiful things. 